All right, we're going to get started with our final panel now. And then afterwards, of course, there's going to be uh, refreshments, which we invite all of you to join us for. So our first speaker is going to be Dr. Daniel Ciccarone. Is that well done? Um, doctor, uh, he's a board-certified clinician in family medicine and addiction medicine. He's a professor at UC San Francisco and has been principal or co-investigator on numerous National Institute of Health-sponsored public health research projects, including his current one, Heroin in Transition, which he'll tell us about. He's a recognized international scholar on the me medical, public health, and public policy dimensions of heroin and opioid use, risk, and consequences. His numerous publications have appeared in top academic journals. He's associate editor for the International Journal of Drug Policy, and recently edited an International Journal of Drug Policy special issue on the triple wave crisis of opioids, heroin, and fentanyl in the U.S. So uh, welcome, Dr. Chikavani. Thank you, Jeff, and uh, thanks for inviting me. This has been a, an outrageously good day, and I'm really happy to be here. Uh, I want to talk to you, I have an impossible task that Jeff gave me. Half my talk's going to be on my research, Heroin Transition Project. Half is going to be talking about medically-assisted treatment or how, we, how do we treat opiate use disorder in the clinical setting. Uh, here are my disclosures. I don't perceive that any of them pose a conflict to the content of today's presentation. Uh, as I said, half the talk will be on heroin transition. It's a mixed methods project, so I'm going to give even a, a little slice of epidemiology, but mostly qualitative stuff. And then we'll talk about the therapeutic uh, modalities that we use uh, in addiction medicine for treating opiate use disorder. The heroin transition study, I'm grateful to my, my sponsor, uh, NIH, National Institute of Drug Abuse. Uh, it's a multi-methodological project. We're four out of five years of this project right now. Uh, I have a uh, epidemiologist. I have a statistical modeler. I have a historian. I have a, uh, uh, a team of ethnographers. We're looking at the heroin crisis uh, as it relates to heroin and fentanyl uh, on multiple levels. 10,000-foot level, epidemiological, looking at medical consequences, not just overdose, but other things. And then on the qualitative level, the, the one-foot level, down in the streets, talking to folks about the new drug that's out there, what people are once called heroin um, and what it's doing to them in terms of uh, their bodies and how they're adapting to it. I've described this epidemic uh, for a while now. I've just finally published a, a paper a couple weeks ago with this title, The Triple Wave Epidemic. It's best that we understand this in his, all of its dimensionality. So um, uh, I appreciate the work that Donald Burke is doing uh, in terms of multi-decades. I think we need to dive down to each one of those sub-epidemics in order to understand the drivers fully. If we understand the drivers fully, we can understand how to intervene. So in three ways, we had the opioid wave, uh, which uh, started uh, well over a decade ago, now almost two decades, now leveling off as of 2017, 2018. We have the heroin wave. These are overdose deaths building on the energy of the first wave with people transitioning from pill dependency to, to heroin use, uh, deaths rising around 2009, uh, and then uh, building up beyond the deaths due to opioid pills. And now the third wave, and the deadliest one yet, deaths due to synthetic opioids, of which fentanyl is the main character, but there's also 40-plus uh, analogs, fentanyl analogs, and even a few non fentanyl synthetic opioids that are driving uh, this part of the epidemic. 
The reason we need to understand them in separate waves is because a lot of things are different if you look at it by wave. So if we compare now uh, demogra just basic demographics, opioid overdoses, pill overdoses, we see, as we saw similar in the, in the, in the last presentation, among older age population, a peak in the older age population. Where's heroin? Young people, peak ages 25, 20 to 35 year olds, right? And growing in this crucial year where things are transitioning from pills to heroin uh, population-wide, we see a rising uh, death rate. And here are the young people in terms of pill overdoses declining during the same time period, which gives a little bit of an ecological aspect to this notion of transition, population transition from one type of opiate to another. Now looking at wave three, and this, uh, you know, forgive me, I'm summarizing lots of research into, you know, simple uh, one-slide things. The synthetic opioid crisis, the fentanyl opioid crisis is regional. Pill overdoses pretty much spread evenly across the country. Yeah, we can pick on certain states as being higher in the, in, in, in the pill mill category and, and overdose category, but fentanyl, Midwest, Appalachia, over to the Eastern Seaboard, really bad up in New England. Qualitative findings. So what are we doing in the qualitative research? It's a hotspot study. Where did we go? We went to the Midwest, we went to Appalachia, we went to the Mid-Atlantic. So we've been in Baltimore, we've been in Chicago, we've been in a number of towns uh, in and around Charleston, West Virginia. We've been to Baltimore, we've been to Massachusetts, a number of places, New Hampshire, Maine. Um, we're interested because this is an unknown crisis. We were in the field, like I said, over four, four years ago. Because we were there early on, we wanted to see how this was going to unfold, right? Instead of predicting it, we wanted to observe it, right? And we wanted to talk to people that were most affected by it. Heroin users, what are you seeing? What are you feeling? What has changed about the drug that's in front of you? So what did we find? Changes in heroin were supply-driven. This was not a demand-driven event. Fentanyl was not a demand-driven event. It came in as a contaminant, as an adulterant, as a poison, if you will, into the heroin stream. People were dismayed by the change. They were upset by it. They were disturbed by it. Here's an example. Um, Hector, he's a 40-year-old. Uh, 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 he's, he's both a dealer and a user, sort of a low-level dealer, if you will. He says, we're supposedly buying dope that doesn't have any fentanyl in it. But when I started showing up dirty, that's a urine drug test, with heroin, I also started showing up dirty with fentanyl. When we cut the dope, we don't use fentanyl. The problem is we're already buying the dope, with, already dirty with that, and we didn't know it. There are tremendous variations in potency. Each fentanyl analog has a different potency from the mother chemical fentanyl. Fentanyl is 40 times as strong as heroin. There are some fentanyl analogs that are three times heroin. There are some that are 400 times heroin. And what we see on the street, and I'm gonna show you pictures in a minute, okay, is that the form, the characteristics of the heroin, the product called heroin, changing by city. It's different in Chicago than it is in Baltimore. It's different in West Virginia. And also changing in a time fashion, different by week, different by month profoundly disturbing to the users. Let me show you some pictures. Heroin was stereotypically seen as three source forms. Black tar heroin from Mexico goes to the Western United States. Brown powdered heroin, we've had it since the early 90s. Uh, Colombian-based um, coming to the East Coast of the United States. Those are the two dominant source forms. That white stuff, so-called China white from Southeast Asia, we haven't seen it in 20 years. What are we seeing now? White powders. 
And when someone told me they'd seen white powers, I'm like, show me. I get on a plane, I'll go see it. Because, because we have not seen white heroin in the United States in 20 years. This is not heroin, this is fentanyl. We're seeing brown. And just to confuse us all, right? Oh, not brown, it's just like a wet, sandy, gray-brown, if you will. If you, if you use the paint chip here, it says sawgrass color. Um, and we did that. We took paint chips out to the field. I'm going to show you that in a second. This actually is heroin. And unbeknownst to a lot of folks, that in the midst of this talk about fentanyl, there came in another element. This is highly refined Mexican white, not really white, it's off-white, white heroin. This is what drove wave two of the triple wave epidemic, is the introduction of this new technologically advanced heroin. People like this stuff. And while some of the heroin solutions look normal, heroin classically is this iced tea color, a lot of it ain't. We're seeing clear solutions. We're seeing bright yellow. We're seeing milky yellow. This is probably, the one before here, that's probably uh, pure fentanyl salt. And this one's probably uh, mixed heroin and a fentanyl salt. Looking at the paint swatch study, we haven't published this yet, but just having people point out, what, what's the color of the heroin you're using? This is the diversity of heroin products that are out there now. And why is this important? Because drugs are, have a certain set, setting, type, person specificity, right? Everyone in this room knows what kind of caffeinated product they liked. Maybe even to the point of even being a little bit, if you're like my, my partner, fussy about it. Well, guess what? Heroin uses a fussy too. And they don't want the heroin to going from pink to yellow to brown in any given month. Right? And to the degree that that color represents a chemical change, the chemistries are changing, the potencies are changing, the, the mixtures are changing. This is quite likely a bigger driver of the overdose problem than is pure fentanyl at a, that's a, you know, this potent drug. If it was just fentanyl, people would get used to it. They would learn how to use it. It's the fact that it's undulating all the time. The devastation is widespread. These are just, each one of these themes that come out of the ethnographic research, each one of these themes is either a paper or a paper to be. Um, some of these have been published. Um, the devastation is widespread. Everyone in this room has known somebody, unfortunately, who's probably died uh, at the hand under, behind a wheel uh, in your lifetime. If you're a heroin user on the East Coast, everyone knows somebody who's died in the last three months and the three months before that and the three months before that. Widespread. Fentanyl is not the world's most desired drug. Some people do like it. Some people like its boldness and its brashness. Some people don't. Too strong, too hot, too white, too bright, too itchy, too twitchy, right? Not the most loved drug in the world. Short acting. People like long acting drugs. People like heroin because it's warm and fuzzy. Heroin is not warm and fuzzy. And because of the failure of public health and and policies as we have them to help address this overdose crisis in a timely fashion. People are doing it for themselves. Harm reduction is and has always been an organic, do-it-yourself cultural movement. So people are learn, relearning, because these are, these are old school techniques, but they're relearning how to stay safe, how to do tester shots, how to do a bit in the nose, taste in the back of the throat before they commit to injecting it. Uh, we wrote a paper on this, published a couple months ago, on these organic harm reduction strategies. What's worrying me now, uh, HIV. Every place that we've been, unfortunately, has a rise in HIV now. We didn't cause it. 
but we observed it. We were there, and we see lots of young people. And the young people, it's a bit of a stereotype, they don't seem to know what they're doing. Right? They're not learning from the old timers about how to inject safely. They're not going to the syringe exchange. A lot of these places don't have adequate sterile syringe provision. Okay? We're going to start seeing HIV. We already are. Massachusetts has an outbreak. West Virginia has an outbreak. So just as a segue now, that is the shortest presentation I've done on any part of the heroin transition study. I'll invite you at the end. Uh, there's a list of publications. But let's move on now to treatment. Um, this is just some photos from Chicago, um, but just a filler. Um, we have debated for 100 years now what, what addiction is. Right? We've, we've gone back and forth between calling it a moral problem to being an issue of choice to being a disease. Right? And all these are presented as caricatures because we still haven't come to an agreement. Right? Even those of us who want to think of it as a brain disease, there's factions there who say, um, as, as, as my friend Maya uh, Salavis will say, it's more of a learning disorder or a developmental problem of the brain. I'm probably in, in her camp, but others are like, you know, hardwiring, changes, neurocircuitry. We need to uh, understand and intervene with those well. well let me give you the current well-accepted definitions of opiate use disorder. We're just going to focus on that one diagnosis. Uh, the psychiatrist will say it's a neurobehavioral syndrome characterized by the compulsive seeking or use of an opiate despite adverse psychological or, so, or physical consequences. Okay, Continued use despite consequences. A lot of folks can agree on that line. NIDA, complex, chronic, and potentially fatal brain disease going full into the notion that it's a brain phenomenon. This is a caricature. It's a stereotype of, of what's going on. If Nora Vokal, the head of NIDA, was here, she would, she would get it into this in much better detail than me. Um, but there's a, a problem that happens between our higher functions in the brain, things like executive function, our ability to control our lives, inhibitory control, our ability to say no, somewhat deeper structures around memory and learning, and our most primitive structures, the limbic system, right? That's about survival. We learned in medical school, limbic system is about the four Fs. Feeding, fighting, fleeing, and you got it. <laughs> and this system becomes dysregulated over time in periods of vulnerability, as Maya would say, either very early childhood and then again in adolescence, that there's a disconnection, a rewiring, if you will, where the limbic system functions take over more control and there's less of the more um, uh, frontal lobe executive function and inhibitory control. Um, also, much too simplistic slide. Drug use can start out with some kind of introduction. Maybe it's a social introduction. Maybe it's within the family. Maybe it's in the social group. Maybe it's during adolescence. Uh, that leads to uh, continued use through some mechanism of reinforcement. We see, see the things on the left there, things like genetics. You like that drug more than you like some other drug. Uh, environment, adverse childhood experiences, and the, and, the, and the fetal environment, very strong predictors of, of drug use um, in the young adult. Stress and how people cope with stress. These can lead to uh, continued use, maybe compulsive use. To some people, we then have a branch. I, would, I should add a branch here. I didn't make this slide, but I would add a branch between some people fall into a dependence category where they use the drug. Maybe they're just they're, they're medical, they're patients, they're in pain. And some people develop use disorder, continued use despite <laughs> consequences. And we also recognize that relapse is an important part of this. And not just relapse at one moment, not just relapse at one age, but through the life course. 
people who get to that point of compulsive use, use despite consequences, are going to relapse. And finally, my field, addiction medicine, has fully adopted that notion, that we treat people through their relapses and don't just abandon them. That's a little bit uneven across the country. What do we do for to treat opiate use disorder? The evidence base in medicine supports the use of opiate agonist therapy. Methadone, buprenorphine. Methadone and buprenorphine, best evidence base for those. There's a third player now called naltrexone XR, a long-acting depot inversion, uh, version of naltrexone uh, that's building an evidence base, and I'll talk about uh, these three medications separately. We need to divide them between agonists, partial agonists, and, um, and antagonists. Uh, thank you to Dr. Wilson Compton. He's the deputy director of NIDA for this slide. Um, full agonists, if we look at the... Um, That's not stronger. Uh, if we look at the, 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 the model of, of the cellular wall here, we see the agonists uh, attached to a receptor, work through a protein in the cell membrane to trigger an effect on the other side, to trigger cellular machinery. They have effect. Partial agonists, like buprenorphine, has a partial effect, whereas antagonists are going to block. But here's the trick to all three of these medicines, the underlying thing that binds them. Haha, that was a joke, binds them. The neuroscientists will all get there. Right? Um, uh, the subconscious works in strange ways. Um, the thing that binds them is the fact that they're all long-acting, and all, including the agonists, will work as blockers to the reinforcing effects of heroin. So whether you put somebody on a full agonist like methadone, partial agonist like buprenorphine, a full antagonist, the goal is to reinforce the short-term cycling use of a highly reinforcing drug such as, as heroin. That's at least the theory behind all this. How well does it work? It is not just substitution. One drug for another is what happens in the street. I can't get hydrocodone one day, I'm gonna ask for oxycodone. Can't get oxycodone, uh, uh, hydromorphone, right? That's substitution, right? I can go across short-acting drugs to, to make my day, right? To feel relief from withdrawal, to, to fill my dependency, right? That's not what we do in medicine. We stabilize people, long-acting drugs, all right? We're gonna hear something different next. I'm just giving you sort of like the classic representation so that we can then bring it to the next level. Um, uh, when we talk about heroin and, and hydromorphone as substitutes, but the theory behind methadone and buprenorphine and the evidence base is that they're long-acting, they stabilize the person in treatment. What are the benefits of that? Because in treatment, it's more than just medication, right? In treatment is engagement, social support, psychological support. The longer the time I can engage somebody or a population, the better success I have. Tension in treatment, number one predictor of success. Can you keep them in? They might relapse, but can they come back quickly, right? Increasing, what else is the evidence base for these two drugs? I'm just talking about methadone and buprenorphine. Increased social employment functioning and reduced harms. Because it reduced craving, reduces illicit drug use. Redu reduces illicit drug use, reduces overdose. Reduces high-risk behaviors that might lead to HIV and hepatitis C. Decreases criminal activity. I've just summed up 50 years of research in one slide. Let's get into a little bit of nuance. Differences between methadone and buprenorphine. Um, at one point, we thought methadone seemed to have a bit of an edge in terms of retention 
in, in treatment, okay? Uh, latest Cochrane uh, uh, meta-analysis shows they're equal if dosed well. But I still think there's some advantage from a public health perspective in terms of buprenorphine, and that is methadone requires a special clinic. Lots of rules, lots of regulations, lots of discipline. Disciplined population has to come in, observe dosing. Yeah, sure, some, some of them get take-homes and stuff like that. A lot of discipline doesn't work for a lot of pe people. And you don't see a lot of methadone clinics in the far reaches of, of, of small towns in rural America. Buprenorphine could be prescribed by any doctor who's willing to go through eight hours of training. Right? So broad effectiveness, or at least potential effectiveness on the population level. Both are highly underutilized. Now, what about naltrexone XR? You sort of, you can tell that I'm kind of leaving it for the end. Is that because it's a better drug or because it's not as good a drug? Okay, so we're not talking about the oral form of naltrexone, 50 milligrams orally per day. Useful in, opi in a, um, uh, alcohol use disorder, it is not useful in opiate use disorder. In fact, it increases the death rate, okay? Bad evidence-based, do not use it. We're talking about a monthly injection, relatively new, it's very expensive, uh, versus placebo, it works well. Versus, and works well also in special populations, folks that have their license or their professional career on the line. Um, there's studies that show, you know, doctors will do well uh, on naltrexone XR if they've been caught, um, not caught, sorry, if they, if they develop a, a, a dependency problem on, um, on opiates. Um, equal to buprenorphine, if you can get people through the crucial period. The crucial period is because it's an antagonist, I can't give it to someone who's dependent right away put them into horrible withdrawal very quickly. You gotta put them through the withdrawal first with other medications and then start the, the blocker, the naltrexone blocker. Buprenorphine, I can get someone on buprenorphine day one. Some people say day three, I can get, because I worked a lot with buprenorphine, I can get people on day one. There's no, no withdrawal period, there's no induction period. Because of the induction period, which is less seven plus days for naltrexone, a lot of people drop out. So if you do real world trials, People walking in the door, randomized to naltrexone versus uh, uh, buprenorphine, buprenorphine wins in real-world trials. But for special populations, naltrexone will work. Um, naltrexone, anecdotally, naltrexone, uh, folks on naltrexone also require addition medica additional medication support. Buprenorphine has a little bit of an antidepressant, anti-anxiety uh, um, uh, effect to it. Naltrexone actually seems to increase sleep disorders and anxiety. So people need a lot of additional support, which of course will add up money and, and, and levels of care. So just to end now, um, I did this work with uh, Josh Katz in the New York Times, Upshot, wrote this uh, terrific article on, uh, on how, what kind of large public policy support do we need in addressing the triple wave epidemic. We did a, uh, I designed a survey, we administered it to 25 uh, policy professionals, clinicians, uh, folks on the criminal justice side, harm, harm reduction folks, this is the final pie, right? Half want to put the money into treatment. I would support that, right? Treatment is going to be very effective. Low threshold buprenorphine would be my number one policy agenda. Um, but things don't exist in a vacuum. We still need harm reduction. I'm a dyed in the wool harm reduction from, from, from the early 90s. Um, we need to look at, very seriously look at supervised consumption spaces. We need harm reduction. We have young people who don't have adequate access to uh, sterile syringes. We need overdose prevention, naloxone, we need a lot of it. Uh, we need a generic, we need it cheap. 
Uh, we do need to look at supply reduction. It can work in special circumstances, especially local understanding supply well. That might not sit well with, 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 with the folks here, but, but supply reduction may have a role, particularly with these particularly strong agonists like fentanyl. Uh, we need demand reduction. Uh, as, as, as Donald Burke mentioned, and, and a team and I wrote a paper uh, in 2017, there are root causes behind this opioid epidemic. Right? There are underlying social economic malaise causes that we need to address. If we don't, the next one's coming up right behind. Uh, just to show off, these are some of the publications from the Heron and Transition Study, particularly the one I, I started off with, the triple wave epidemic that just came out. It's open access. Take a look at it. Um, a number of qualitative papers have come out, again, exploring what it is so that we can better address this notion of fentanyl and the quantitative stuff as well. And of course, my acknowledgments, and I'd like to thank you all for your kind attention. Thank you, that was excellent, uh, and one of the fastest run-throughs of <laughs> Well done. Our next speaker is uh, Dr. Bolt Kilmer. He's a senior policy researcher at RAND Corporation, where he co-directs the RAND Drug Policy Research Center. His research lies at the intersection of public health and public safety, with special emphasis on crime control, substance use, illicit markets, and public policy. Uh, Kilmer's publications have appeared in leading journals, such as Lancet Psychiatry, New England Journal of Medicine, and Proceedings of the National Academy of Sciences, and his commentaries on drug policy have been published by CNN, Los Angeles Times, New York Times, Newsweek, San Francisco Chronicle, USA Today, Wall Street Journal, and others. So, uh, Dr. Kilmer. Well, good afternoon. I want to begin by thanking Jeff and Michael and everyone here at Cato for setting this up. Uh, I've learned a tremendous amount uh, from the presentations, but also kind of the side discussions at lunch, so thank you. And I also want to apologize that my partner in crime on this, uh, Rosanna Smart, couldn't be here to present. If she could have been here, she would have been. So unfortunately, you're stuck with me. Uh, but uh, Jeff asked me to speak about some work that I've been doing at RAND with a number of colleagues um, looking at kind of international approaches to addressing some of the harms related to uh, opioid use uh, disorder and fentanyl poisonings and overdose. And so we've been doing a lot of work assessing the evidence and the arguments that have been made about heroin-assisted treatment as well as supervised consumption sites, but then also examining some of the issues associated with implementing them in, here in the United States. And we wanted to be very comprehensive about this. So I put together a real, uh, you know, a multidisciplinary team. We had economists, policy scholars, uh, uh, operations researchers. It's always good to have an engineer on your team when you're analyzing simulation studies. But we also wanted to be doing qualitative work as well. And so kind of similar to what, you know, Dan's team, we had anthropologists, we had, you know, people who do work in social welfare, really trying to bring all different perspectives to begin to look at, uh, at these issues. And so our mixed methods approach included a rigorous reviews of the scientific literature. Uh, we did international interviews with experts. That are, some of them are in this room, some of them are on the panel, and I want to thank you very much for donating your time and your expertise. We also spent time talking to policymakers here in the U.S., uh, not only kind of frontline treatment staff, but we also talked to people who use heroin and fentanyl in, uh, in two states. We did in New Hampshire and in, in Ohio, and I'm very thankful for the time and effort they put into uh, sharing their views with us. We had a lawyer on the team, did a legal analysis. We also did some public polling. Uh, but given that we only have about 20 minutes, I want to spend I want to spend most of the time talking about the work that we've done on a heroin-assisted treatment. And uh, but all of this work was published in December. It was about five reports, over 400 pages. If you want to download it, ran.org. 
But the goals for heroin-assisted treatment are simply to reduce the use of illicit heroin use and stabilize the lives of, these, of the individuals who've been using heroin. It's pretty simple. Now, it, typically the way it's set up in most countries, uh, you know, it, it's pharmaceutical-grade diamorphine or heroin, and it's usually injected under medical supervision. The UK had a take-home system, but mo when you usually hear about heroin-assisted treatment, it is going to be uh, under medical supervision. People will come in two, three times a day. And this isn't for, this isn't a first-line treatment, and this isn't for people who are new to heroin. Typically, people who are accessing these programs, they've been using for at least a decade. They've tried other treatments multiple times, but they're still injecting. And so you can see here, this is showing the countries that have uh, um, made heroin-assisted treatment available. And you can see in some countries, they may only have a, you know, one or two clinics, where if you look at the Netherlands or Switzerland, they have nearly 20 clinics uh, throughout the country. Providing this is just one of the options. I mean, they also you know, make methadone and you know, uh, 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 different types of morphine available for folks as well. Uh, in addition to these seven countries, Spain has a compassionate use program. Uh, that uh, does receive some attention, especially in the academic literature. And it sounds like Norway, is very soon, is going to be starting their own uh, heroin-assisted uh, treatment trial, uh, where they'll be randomly assigning uh, individuals uh, to, uh, to the treatment. Um, a lot of people want to know, well, why isn't this an option here in the United States? Well, it used to be until I was phased out with the 1914 Harrison Act, as well as some subsequent su uh, Supreme Court decisions. And the fact that heroin is now classified as a Schedule I drug means that doctors can't prescribe it. So that's why, we don't, why it's not considered an option here in the U.S. So one of the aspects of our, um, of our research project was to do a really rigorous review of the literature going all the way through uh, early 2018. These are the search terms. Not only, not only it was very standard in terms of uh, kind of the databases we looked at, but then we also kind of looked at the kind of the key studies in, in, in many of these the studies that get quoted to make sure we weren't missing anything when we were doing our interviews. We talked to people just to make sure that we weren't missing any, uh, any studies that could be useful for drawing insights about this uh, intervention. And we focus on randomized controlled trials. And these trials were similar in that they typically, the, the people that were participating in them had long histories of heroin use, and they had tried mul uh, multiple treatments uh, multiple times, typically methadone. The thing to keep in mind with these randomized controlled trials is they're not comparing heroin-assisted treatment to nothing. Typically, your treatment group not only would get heroin-assisted treatment where they could go in two, three times a day and inject, they would also have access to take-home methadone. So then that way, if they couldn't make it the next day, something to kind of help them with withdrawal. That was the treatment condition. Your control condition was just oral methadone. So this is going to be important when we think about the policy implications, because we're not comparing heroin-assisted treatment to nothing. We're, consider, we're comparing heroin-assisted treatment plus the option to take-home methadone uh, compared to oral methadone. And... Uh, and I want to be very clear, we are not the first group to kind of do this type of work. Uh, Maya had cited a, a Cochrane review that was done in 2011. John Strang has done some work. But if you actually look at those, the systematic reviews that have been done, they only focus on 25 different studies that are from these trials. And so when we did our kind of updated review, we found 30 more. So providing new insights here. But I want to make it clear, uh, people have been researching this for quite some time. Um, but uh, so... Before I get into the findings, I want to make it clear about how we define what we considered strong evidence versus what we considered suggestive evidence. We considered a finding to be strong, first of all, if it was something that was assessed in most of the randomized controlled trials. Um, second, if more than two-thirds of the studies found statistically significant effects in the same direction. And at the same time, if there were no studies suggesting a statistically significant effect in the other direction. That was kind of our criteria for what we considered strong evidence. 
And uh, we considered the evidence to be suggestive if for that second factor, if maybe not two-thirds of the studies found a significant effect in one direction, but even the insignificant studies kind of suggested that it was going to be in that direction. So that's the, that's the, uh, the criteria that we're using here. And so in terms of the strong evidence, there is very strong evidence uh, that those that were randomly assigned to heroin-assisted treatment were less likely to be using street-sourced heroin and, and reduce their interactions with the illicit market. And this is really important, especially when we think about the context of fentanyl here in the United States and in Canada and in other places. There was also strong evidence that those that were randomly assigned to heroin-assisted treatment uh, were more likely to stay in treatment. But you have to be careful about these particular findings because oftentimes people would, in some cases, you would enter the trial. If you were randomly assigned to methadone, then you would just drop out. And also it was the case that in some of the studies, they considered you, if you, were, if you received heroin-assisted treatment and then you transitioned to methadone, you were still considered to be in treatment, whereas if you were randomly assigned just to methadone, you didn't necessarily have the option to go to heroin in the trial. So there's some asymmetries there, so you have to be careful uh, uh, in terms of drawing strong causal um, inferences about that part of the literature. And the other thing we found with respect to there being strong evidence is that you're much more likely to have adverse effects related to the study medication. Even though it's pharmaceutical-grade heroin or diamorphine, that's still more dangerous than methadone. And that's why people are injecting kind of under supervision. With respect to kind of what we found, the suggestive evidence, um, you know, the early studies that were done on this, you know, really found that it had a significant effect on reducing criminal activity. Some of the more recent studies, not all of them, actually didn't find that it had much of an effect. So there are some studies suggesting this, but that's why we kind of put it in the suggestive category. Uh, there's also suggestive evidence that those that were randomly assigned to heroin-assisted treatment improved their physical and mental health. There's also some evidence that may have reduced uh, benzodiazepine uh, use, although you have to be careful there once again. Not a lot of studies specifically looked at benzos, and in some of the cases, you know, for those that were randomly assigned, you know, the, those that were actually administering were very, you know, specific to them about that they needed to be careful about their benzo use. So not a lot of work has been done on that, but uh, I, was, I would say that it would be suggestive. Um, in terms of heroin-assisted treatment, there was another study where it compared it to injectable hydromorphone. This is what Scott's going to talk about, uh, what, they, uh, what they've been doing in Canada. And this was interesting. So that instead of randomly assigning people to oral methadone, they randomly assigned them to injectable either hero, injectable heroin or injectable hydromorphone. And he found that there were similar outcomes at six months. With those that were randomly assigned to hydromorphone had fewer serious adverse effects. And there's some discussion here in the United States that hydromorphone may actually be more politically acceptable because it's a Schedule II drug not Schedule one like heroin. So what does heroin-assisted treatment mean for overdose deaths? Now, if you look at the reviews, they suggest that heroin-assisted treatment may have a protective effect, but the results weren't statistically significant. But that's not surprising. Of these 10 trials, they either lasted, most of them either lasted six months or 12 months. There might have been one that lasted nine months. So even in both your treatment and your control groups, you just didn't have a lot of people dying. So you're not necessarily going to pick that up. Um, there was an interesting study done by Jurgen Riemann colleagues, which was looking in Switzerland, which has had heroin-assisted treatment for quite some time. And they were looking at the individuals who had been, uh, um, been participating in heroin-assisted treatment and looked at their mortality risk. And they found that in general, yes, for those individuals, their mortality risk was still larger than it was for the general population. But for that group, it was actually lower than for typical opioid-using populations. Now, it's hard to draw causal inferences there, but it is suggestive that it did have an effect on the overdose deaths. 
Now, in terms of the economic outcomes, I mean, heroin-assisted treatment is more expensive than oral methadone because, you know, as I said, because of those serious, because of the risks of the serious adverse events, you have to have someone there kind of supervising. In some cases, you had to import it. Um, that said, there have been a few studies which have suggested that still the benefit-cost ratio is actually higher for heroin-assisted treatment versus methadone because of this reduction in crime. Um, and in fact, most of the trials that looked at this, uh, they found that the patients that were randomly assigned to heroin-assisted treatment had higher quality of adjusted life years, qualities, than compared to those on the treatment side. That said, those findings may have more to do with the mode of administration than the chemical. Because the, if you look at the two studies that compared in, injectable heroin to either injectable methadone or injectable hydromorphone, they actually found no differences with respect to cost or, or, or uh, uh, quality adjusted life years. So that's something to keep in mind when people talk about the cost here. A lot of it's going to depend on what's your comparison group. It's also important to consider scale issues. Once again, you know, this is not a first-line treatment, nor is it going to be a silver bullet. And soon after we published our report, uh, there was a, a paper by Nort et al. that was published in Addiction, which was looking at Zurich, which has had medication uh, uh, treatments for opioid use disorder for quite some time, and kind of looking at it for slow-release morphine versus uh, methadone. And they found that for everyone that was receiving uh, some type of medication to address their opioid use disorder, only about 12% of them um, were using uh, heroin-assisted treatment. That said, and this is something to kind of keep in mind with all of these studies, most of this was done in times and places that weren't dealing with fentanyl. So one could imagine that these take-up rates could be different in, in places where people are worried about fentanyl contaminating the heroin or whatever else uh, they may be injecting. So at the end of the study, kind of based on the evidence and kind of based on what's happening in the United States with respect to uh, um, uh, with fentanyl, we recommend that we should start some heroin-assisted treatment randomized controlled trials here in the United States. Not full-scale implementation, let's do some trials first to see if, you, the, if some of the consequences or some of the, the see if the, the, what, we're, what you see in Canada and what you see in Europe, see if you get similar benefits here in the United States. Realize in Canada and in a lot of these European countries, they tend to have stronger social you know, safety nets as well. So it may not be the case that you've seen the same effects. And also it's unclear how things would look with respect to fentanyl. And while I said that it, you know, it's not legal to prescribe a Schedule I drugs in the United States, it is legal to conduct research on them. You can do research with Schedule I drugs. We heard earlier, I mean, cannabis is a Schedule I drug as well. There are a lot of additional hoops you have to jump through, but you can do research on this. So we recommend that it will be important to do some of these trials, but we want to make sure they're going to be in places that already provide kind of a spectrum of services and good access to medication treatment. Because one of the things we find out, especially if you look at the trials in Germany and Switzerland, you know, there are some people that if they can stay on, um, if they can stay on heroin for a while, they will. But there are some people that also will decide over time that they want to move to methadone or they want to move to other treatments. So if we're going to do this in a few places in the United States, you want to make sure it's a place that already has kind of good provision of these services. Services. Now, um, one of the things that we ran into early on when we were working on this, I was wondering, what do we call it? Right? Because I mean, we know that there's this move now in terms of you know, medication-assisted treatment. Well, no, maybe we should just call it medication treatment. So should we call it heroin-assisted treatment or just heroin treatment? Is heroin stigmatizing? Should we actually be refer referring to it as diamorphine? 
So what we ended up doing is at RAND, we have this thing called the American Life Panel, where we can add questions for a nationally representative sample of the US. And so we added a question to the uh, uh, survey in early 2018. And the question was, in some European cities, heroin users who fail treatment, for example, methadone, multiple times, can be prescribed pharmaceutical grade blank as a substitute for illicit heroin in order to help stabilize their lives. Should we try this approach in the United States? And before I get to the results, I want to make it very clear that if I could do this over, I would reword this question. In terms of saying heroin users who fail treatment, when we're talking about treatment outcomes or when we're talking about the results from uh, uh, your analyses, we should not be using the word fail. So I, I own that. I, I'm, I'm vigorous about that now. I don't think it affected the results, but look, this is my mistake and I'm owning up to it. Um, that said, so as I said, half the sample, we had about 2,500 people. So half the people got the question with heroin, half of of them got it with diamorphine. And for those that got it with heroin, you could see in terms of should we try this approach in the United States, about 20% said yes, and then about 35% said no. You had about 45% of the folks there that uh, kind of were don't know, unsure. For those that got it for diamorphine, the ratios almost flip. You see that's about 30% that say yes, uh, less than 20% that say no. And, uh, and actually, you had a, high, uh, a larger number of people reporting don't know, not unsure, which makes sense since a lot of people don't know what diamorphine is. Now, this is not the last word on this. Uh, I mean, it would have been great to have you know, added follow-up questions, and I think it would be better to even do focus groups with, with people. Um, but I think as we have more discussions about this, I think it's going to be important how, how, we, you know, how we refer to this in different audiences, realize that's going to have different consequences. So in terms of my concluding thoughts, you know, fentanyl is going to, you know, what you've heard about today and you've been hearing about for years, I mean, it requires that we open up our policy discussions in terms of what may work in different jurisdictions. And of course, increasing access to medication treatments that uh, Dan and others have been talking about, I mean, that's got to be a priority. I mean, there are still parts of the country where Medicaid won't cover methadone. That is a problem. That said, there are going to be some places that, uh, you know, that are already providing um, you know, medication treatments, and they're going to want to try other options out there. And so the other thing I want you to keep in mind is when you hear people talking about the research on heroin-assisted treatment, once again, realize all of those results are largely comparing those that received heroin-assisted treatment to methadone, whereas when we think about the real comparisons and we think about the consequence of what's going to happen, we may want to be comparing those who get heroin-assisted treatment versus those that are only using street-sourced heroin. So with that, I'll close, and I look forward to your questions and comments. Thank you very much. Um, and uh, the next speaker is going to be uh, Dr. Scott McDonald. Dr. McDonald is the physician lead at the Providence Crosstown Clinic in Vancouver, British Columbia. Uh, Crosstown was a site of uh, Salome, S-A-L-O-M-E, the study to assess longer-term <clears throat> opioid medication effectiveness and part of the North American Opioid Opiate Medication Initiative the first prescription heroin studies on the continent. He continues to supervise injectable opioid agonist treatment at the clinic. The Crosstown Clinic is still the only clinic in North America to provide injectable diamorphine for opioid use disorder. Dr. McDonald graduated from Dalhousie, I said it right, Dalhousie University Medical School in 1992. During his career, he's worked as a primary care physician at various sites, including Canadian Forces Base Halifax, and in rural settings in northern Manitoba and Nunavut. His focus in Vancouver has been substance use, and he first prescribed prescription heroin in 2006. Dr. McDonald. Thank you. And I'm going to just 
start with a video, and hopefully this will play. I just want to acknowledge our patients and their voices. I met him at the injection site, and he was heroin sick. And I actually had some, and I took him and helped him. You know, and back then, we were struggling. Your life just turns into all it's about is getting well. Every minute of every day, you're either making money to get well or getting well. And I tried treatments, I tried everything, and nothing would work. And you just, you lose yourself. And the difference from then to today is we have our lives back. Here at the Crosstown Clinic, we provide injectable treatment options for the most severely affected heroin users who have not responded to the typical treatments. But suffering from injection use of illicit heroin is enormous. The individuals suffer and society suffers as well. If people are not engaged in care with methadone and suboxone, which are great treatments and work for most people, we need more treatment options, more tools in the toolkit. Not only is this treatment more effective than the standard treatments, it is also more cost-effective. Uh, it just uh, brought me back like in touch with um, feeling like there was a, there was a, a way out, uh, you know, a way to get healthy again and a way to feel human. I hated myself many, many years. When I looked in the mirror, I didn't see me. I saw a person that did her hair. I didn't look at me. I just used the mirror to beautify myself to make some money for more drugs. Now I look at me, who I am, and I can smile because I like me today. Slides. Okay. You need some help. <clears throat> there we go. All right. So I'm going to talk about uh, the work that we're doing at uh, Providence Healthcare's Crosstown Clinic in Vancouver. Uh, yes, we're the first clinic to offer uh, prescription heroin and still do. There are a number of other clinics in Canada now offering hydromorphone and hopefully soon we'll have, a, we'll have more access to, to dimorphine. Uh, I don't have any conflicts uh, to report. And I'd like to acknowledge uh, our, our study participants in Naomi and Salome. Uh, their time and dedication uh, has uh, been essential. And I'd like to acknowledge uh, our principal investigator, uh, Dr. Ahenya Yovedayokas. Without her uh, academic expertise, we would not have uh, the evidence from Naomi and Salome, nor we would have the uh, injectable opiate agonist treatment programs that we have in Canada. So I'll talk about uh, diamorphine and, and hydromorphone uh, and the evidence that's already been touched on here, so I won't go into it in, in detail. Uh, I'll talk about the rationale for Salome. And there are some uh, political and, and policy uh, undertones, as, as you talked about. Uh, politics and policy is going to play a role. It has played a role with the work that we've done and continues to. Uh, and uh, I remain optimistic. And we are rising to meet a crisis. And, uh, uh, we're slowly making changes, not as fast as I'd like, but uh, uh, we have a prescription heroin clinic uh, 
uh, in Canada. And uh, some, some days I pinch myself because it was a miracle to get that up and running. Uh, opioid use disorder is uh, chronic and relapsing. We have good treatments, as have been discussed here, but they don't work for everybody. They don't work for everybody all the time. Uh, we need more tools in the toolkit, and there's evidence now from Canada uh, and European studies that diacetylmorphine and hydromorphone are effective, feasible, safe treatment approaches. And while we do have good treatments, it's a limited menu. You know, we've got a health crisis, and I can count on one hand the treatment options that we have. Well, that's it. That's tough. That's not a lot of choice for patients. So how did we come to prescription heroin? Well, uh, I guess it started in England. Uh, they've had some take-home prescription heroin for nearly a century. Uh, and then we learned from the Swiss. Uh, the Swiss looked at what was going on in their country in the late 80s and said, oh, there's a lot of uh, heroin use, people are dying, this is uh, a public health problem, what do we do? Uh, and uh, being uh, pragmatic, uh, uh, as they are, uh, they said, well, let's just try giving them heroin. We don't quite like the English model. Uh, we'd like to supervise it and uh, not give them take-homes. <clears throat> Uh, and uh, they started, and uh, it, was success, uh, it was a success. Uh, it's been scaled up uh, several times, approved uh, uh, with a national referendum, and now uh, uh, incorporated into their healthcare system. And if you're on heroin-assisted treatment and you go to jail in Switzerland, you get your heroin-assisted treatment while you're in jail. And of course, it's just a treatment, so of course they should give it to you. Uh, but seeing the result of this, North America researchers started saying, well, maybe this is something we should consider here. And that led to Naomi, uh, where I started working on prescription heroin. Uh, one of the lead researchers there was uh, fr from uh, UBC, a Martin Schechter. Uh, and initially, there were going to be sites across North America. Uh, unfortunately, none of the US sites wound up being able to uh, participate. Uh, and it wound up with uh, Montreal uh, and Vancouver. And it asked the question, is prescription heroin superior to methadone in that population that continues to use illicit opioids despite attempts at methadone? And uh, turns out, yes, uh, it is superior. Uh, at that time, we were unable trans to transition to a, a program. Uh, we asked Health Canada, as we were wrapping up the Naomi cell study, if they allowed us to have compassionate access through the SAP program for access to diamorphine. Uh, we were denied at that time, and the uh, clinic shut down. We kept running sort of as methadone and suboxone, but the people that had come into Salome, or into Naomi, sorry, had come in because that and those treatments had not worked for them. So uh, unfortunately, uh, many of our patients went, participants went back to using on the street, and uh, some come to, to overdose. Since then, uh, we do have uh, a uh, paper in the New England Journal of Medicine, and uh, we have a Cochrane Review now. Uh, and sometimes I joke that only Denmark benefited from uh, Naomi. 
because uh, they looked at the results and know me and said, we don't even need to do any more studies. We're just going to start a prescription heroin program. Uh, so good for them. But we did wind up with our follow-up study, uh, Salome, and uh, we, we do have that. So uh, social and economic costs and benefits. We estimate from a Toronto study the cost of somebody using illicit opioids is at least $45,000 a year. We can provide this treatment annually for about $25,000 to $27,000 a year. So that's a crude analysis, but it gives you sort of a, a ballpark figure. And it's, it's worth the investment. I mean, there are less expensive treatments, but if people aren't attracted into they don't want them, they won't take them, it's not efficient. And Cochrane said this back in 1972. An ineffective service is inefficient and cannot be cost-effective no matter how cheaply it is provided. So why did we run Salome? So we couldn't get dimorphine. Uh, there were too many uh, political barriers. Uh, we still had the, the clinic running as a methadone and, and suboxone clinic, so we, we had the infrastructure still there. Uh, 25 participants, 10% of the people who were receiving injectable in Naomi were actually receiving hydromorphone. And that was an internal con control because the researchers are asking how much illicit heroin, how many days have you used illicit heroin this month? To confirm those self-reports, uh, the people receiving hydromorphone, if we found heroin metabolites in their urine, then that corroborated the, the self-report. Uh, we are, in, in, uh, in Salome and subsequently, we are able to distinguish metabolites of prescription heroin from metabolites of uh, uh, the street heroin. Although, there's no more street heroin in Vancouver, it's all, it's all fentanyl now. So Salome was designed to test non-inferiority of hydromorphone. I asked the question, is hydromorphone or Dilaudid as good as diacetylmorphine or prescription heroin in that population that continues to use illicit opioids despite attempts at the standard treatments? The advantage of hydromorphone is just that it's a licensed pharmaceutical. Uh, it, it's, it's available. Uh, this was sort of our, our, our intake criteria. Uh, people had to have a confirmed DSM for di diagnosis of severe opioid use disorder, at least 19 years of age, at least five years of opioid use, injecting regularly in the past year, at least two episodes of a treatment, one of which had to be methadone, with poor physical, psychological, uh, or psychosocial functioning. Now, using this criteria, we selected folks who on average had been using for 15 years and had 11 attempts at treatment. So uh, I think we heard some discussion earlier today that you'd like to see, if we're setting a, the bar for prescription heroin, maybe 10 years of injection use uh, might be the criteria. I, I, think, I think that's too high. I think five years is too high. Uh, I just want to talk about incarceration and, and illegal activity in our participants. 80% uh, of our, our participants had been in, in jail at baseline 
on average for a month. And they were engaged in illegal activities at baseline about half the days out of the month. And by six months in, in care with us, that illegal activity dropped to a handful of days a month. Uh, and we have a, a PhD student. Let me give a shout out to Kirsten Marchand. Uh, she's doing a uh, sort of patient-centered care uh, approach to opioid use disorder in, in our, our population. And one individual has identified uh, stopping or reducing illegal activity. They, they've made the connection themselves between having access to diacetylmorphine and reduced crime. Probably the most important thing about IOT would be the medication, because that stops the need for other things. Not needing to go and buy street drugs, not having to go and do crime. Like I said, I always had charges. I was in and out of jail all the time. My most recidivist patient tells me that he'd been in and out of jail over 200 times, and since he's been with us, he's not been back to jail. Uh, at baseline, this is the question, if you, do you want hydromorphone or, 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 or diamorphine? Well, we think you need both, but if hydromorphone is all you have, go with hydromorphone. Uh, at baseline, people were asked, if you had both drugs offered, which would you prefer? And 83% said, well, I'd rather have the diamorphine. But the follow-up question was, well, if all we had was hydromorphone, would you take that? And 82% said, yes, they would. The blinding was not, was not broken in the study either. This may be the only slide that you need to look at or, or remember. Uh, it's the number of uh, days of uh, accessing street opioids against uh, months in care. And when people start, they're accessing street opioids every day. And by six months in care, it's less than five days a month. And this is in a population that has uh, not been attracted or retained in, in other treatments. This is time till first 30-day treatment interruption. Uh, and at six months with uh, either drugs, uh, our retention and care is, uh, is over 80%. This is average doses of hydromorphine, hydromorphone or diamorphine. Uh, and if you look at the bottom there, Salome's average dam dose uh, was 506 milligrams a day. Average hydromorphone, 261 milligrams, uh, similar to the doses in our Naomi study and similar to doses uh, at some of the European clinics. I've heard these doses called several things, but I like to call them average, and adequate. Our goal is to get people in care and retain them in care. And I think one reason that other treatment modalities haven't worked is that people are underdosed and they're not getting the effect that they need. This slide shows our uh, uh, titration schedule uh, for hydromorphone. Uh, if, you, if you look up at the front, there's a at the, at the table, we've got our uh, adverse events uh, treatment induction paper, and there are, there are copies of the induction protocols uh, uh, in that paper. Uh, 
We're able to get people to, with, with hydromorphone and salome, up to 90 milligrams at the end of the second day. With diamorphine, that's up to 180 milligrams. So uh, we can get people quickly uh, up to an, an effective dose of an opioid. And I think, I think that's one of the reasons that our, our retention is, is good. However, with uh, fentanyl now uh, saturating the market hydromorphone, uh, we have found we had to start at a higher dose uh, and go a little higher. So uh, on the, uh, we're starting with 30 milligrams of hydromorphone instead of 10 milligrams now, and people can get up to 130 milligrams of hydromorphone. Uh, and that's to reflect exposure to, uh, to fentanyl. So this slide shows uh, average dose. Uh, green is hydromorphone, blue is diamorphine, uh, and uh, you can see that doses increase over the first uh, few weeks that people are with us, and that would be predictable. But then the, the doses settle out. So one of the criticisms or concerns that we've heard is that people will just take more and more and more and the doses will escalate. Uh, in fact, we don't see that. Uh, adverse events, uh, mostly were expected, so localized histamine reactions and over-sedation. Uh, hydromorphone did have less adverse events compared to diacetylmorphine, although there were more histamine reactions in the hydromorphone group. Uh, but this, I think, is reassuring. Of a total of over 88,000 injection treatment events, there were only 14 overdoses that required naloxone. Uh, and all of those events were successfully managed on site. So I just want to move on to the cost effectiveness question. Uh, this was published uh, last year by Nick Bansback, our uh, health uh, economist. And he's taken uh, data from Naomi and Salome. So Naomi compared diacetylmorphine to methadone with a few hydromorphone participants. Salome, uh, referring from the uh, uh, Naomi data, can make some indirect comparisons uh, to the methadone group. And then uh, there was another long-term methadone study happening uh, in British Columbia, and they've used that for some uh, aggregate data. But basically, using uh, adjust, quality adjusted of life years and, and modeling, uh, there's reduced mortality compared to methadone when you're providing injectable treatments, and at less cost over the lifetime, as well as a reduction in property crime and violent crime. And that paper, well, there's, there's the paper, but there's a copy of it out front if you'd like to look at that yourself. So our conclusions from Salome. In jurisdictions where diacetylmorphine is currently not available, or for patients where it is contraindicated or unsuccessful, hydromorphone could be offered as an alternative within the supervised model of care. 
and salary participants have provided evidence to support the supervised model. Uh, I just want to read another, another quote from Kirsten Marsand. And I, I want to emphasize that the, the, the model of care and how we provide care, how we care for uh, our patients is, is essential. Uh, it is much more than just providing uh, uh, a drug. I, mean, I may write their scripts, I'm there for support, but it's the daily interaction with our health, allied health professionals, our social workers, our nurses, uh, that make this a, a successful treatment. Long pause. Honestly, the other methods of treatment I've done, they weren't looking realistically at what I was needing, right? They were always trying to tell me what I needed. You know, like abstinence programs, for instance, have never worked for me, and I just haven't. I, I've tried to explain that when I've gone into them, sort of been pushed into some of them, that I always felt have, there is something wrong with me, that I just couldn't do that. Here I am, not told how I should be. It's like we understand what you're asking for, Here's what we can provide you with. Yeah, that for me is not a reality. It's just not. Even the methadone, I would always still use because it wasn't giving me what I wanted, what I needed, which was that little bit of a high that I get. It gets me out of bed every day, knowing that I get to go downtown to this treatment, and I'm not just going to be sick, I'm actually going to feel good in my skin. I'm going to feel good for the day. There's a huge difference. So uh, my view of politics and policy, this is uh, my, my, the, sort of why, where I start from. Supervised injectable opiate agonist treatment, it's safe, it's effective, it's cost effective, there's no controversy. <laughs> uh, and this time, uh, Health Canada approved access to diamorphine uh, when we were uh, uh, for our patients who were uh, exiting and exiting the study, and of course they did. There's a Cochrane review with Canadian data and also studies showing it's cost-effective. There were some political uh, hiccups and uh, uh, a, a lawsuit, but ultimately we prevailed. Yes, yes. The, uh, if people are in a study and benefiting from a treatment that they're receiving, uh, they have a right to continue to receive it uh, after the study's over. Uh, and uh, Canada is a signature to the Helsinki Accord, and uh, that's one of the reasons why we have an injectable treatment program now uh, in Canada. But it's being expanded because it works and because it uh, reduces societal costs. So uh, yes, maybe the government was forced to do it because uh, uh, they'd signed something, but ultimately they're gonna expand it because we, they see the benefit. Uh, in April 2016, British Columbia declared a health emergency and we've had over a thousand illicit drug overdose deaths uh, every year since. Uh, and in uh, this past year, we still had over 1,500. So while it's terrific that we have a small clinic that offers prescription heroin, uh, this has not yet been scaled up uh, in British Columbia or Canada to the point that would have a population effect. How would it expand? 
Well, uh, the freestanding clinics like Crosstown is one example. Could also happen in hospitals. Uh, Edmonton has a hospital clinic now, uh, and they're starting some folks who are admitted for uh, endocarditis or osteomyelitis. Uh, they're, they're starting injectable hydromorphone and they're continuing them on uh, in an ambulatory clinic at the hospital. Uh, Insight or overdose prevention sites could be uh, a site. Uh, in Canada, you can provide uh, injectable opioid agonist treatment and supervised, conjunct, uh, supervised uh, treatments in the same building. They're not... Uh, uh, it's possible. Mobile units uh, and... Uh, uh, the city of Kamloops is exploring that in British, Colum British Columbia. Community health centers, uh, there's at least three in Canada that are now uh, uh, offering IOT uh, with hydromorphone in the setting of a community health center. Uh, there's a pharmacy model. So uh, in BC, we will probably come to a point fairly soon where somebody could go uh, to the, uh, so the interview room at a pharmacy and receive their injectable hydromorphone supervised by a pharmacist. And there's also a private model. There's at least one clinic in Ontario that has a patient who receives injectable hydromorphone and just has the funds to pay individually. Uh, there's nothing to prevent me as a physician from prescribing hydromorphone or, or, or diamorphine. They are just uh, prescription, uh, they're just other prescription opioids. The, I think it's a different situation here. <laughs> so currently we have Crosstown with uh, about 140 patients. Uh, about 10 of those are actually oral uh, that have stepped down to other treatments. Uh, in the Vancouver area, including Crosstown, about 200. There's more BC clinics planned. There's two clinics in Alberta, one in Edmonton, one in Calgary, uh, and there's a clinic in Ottawa, and then, as I mentioned, there's a, there's a, there's a private clinic uh, as well. So I remain optimistic, and one reason I was, I was invited here to Washington, D.C. in 2016 to testify uh, before the United States Senate Homeland Security Committee. They were very receptive. We had a, a, a good discussion. Uh, I think that they should uh, uh, grant an exemption for hydromorphone and diamorphine uh, for treatment of opioid use disorder in the supervised context. In that context, the public is protected. Any risk of diversion is mitigated. The patients will get, will get care. Uh, I'm not sure what they've done with that. Nothing. So we, we got prescription heroin on November 28th of 2014, and uh, uh, with a few uh, hiccups, uh, it's uh, just routine care now at Crosstown. Alberta has two uh, programs, one in Edmonton and Calgary, as I mentioned. That's a fairly conservative country, or part of the country. They have a health minister, though, who's been very direct and very clear in communicating that this is best for patients and best for Albertans and will reduce taxpayers' costs. So uh, uh, one of the reasons I'm optimistic is uh, when there's a champion like that, things can get done. There's just a final quote here. Uh, and again, uh, the setting, how we provide care, it's much more than just providing a drug. I think the environment setting is important, right? It's the social setting. You know what I mean? Like, you know everybody that's in there, right? You have the choice to, uh, to, to you know, 
be secluded or be involved in the environment, right? You know, and most people are involved in the environment. Everybody's a little social when we get there. We're there to be socially interactive and stuff about good things, about things that are positive in our lives or things we could hope to get better. You know what I mean? It's really cool. So just to sum up, uh, injectable opioid treatment, both diamorphine and hydroborphone, reduce mortality and are cost-saving. It's a treatment option for those who continue to use street drugs and all the risks entailed with that, injecting-related infections and overdose death, irreparable harm. It substantially reduces people's need for street drugs, reduces crime, leads to more engagement with healthcare and allied services, and in jurisdictions where diamorphine may not be available, hydromorphone may be an alternative. And this is our clinic, and this is a, a picture of our uh, clinical coordinator, a nurse, of course, uh, and I just want to highlight this is not a physician-run clinic. It is really nurse-led, uh, and our allied uh, uh, healthcare workers uh, and, and staff are essential uh, to delivering the service. Thank you. Um, I just want, I want to ask, before I take some questions, I, I have couple of questions, if you don't mind. First, I think uh, uh, Kristen Marchand's second to the last quote probably alluded to it. But does anybody, uh, this is addressed to all of you. Why do you think in those cases where uh, methadone has failed multiple times that heroin-assisted treatment does seem to work for those patients? Is it because they, 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 those particular patients need that little high that you get with the heroin? Is that what you think, why you think works better? Well, I, th I, th I think that's part of it. Uh, we, we identified two groups in, in Salome. There's a group that's been on high-dose opioids, more likely to have a diagnosis of, of chronic pain, and methadone doses well over 100 milligrams. And they just continued to have cravings. So for whatever reason, methadone and oral medications did not satisfy their, their cravings for opioids. There was another group that never tolerated high doses of methadone and maybe had never been on more than 30 or 40 milligrams of methadone and just didn't tolerate the oral medications. So uh, there's a, a variety of reasons, but setting a hard, you must have been on this much opioid to be eligible for injectables, it would not be the correct approach because you're gonna exclude an important group of people. Okay. And then I just wanted to ask, uh, particularly uh, you, Dan, um, when you were going over your heroin and transition study with us, um, I'm, I'm, I know you're aware of uh, Ted Cicero's findings a couple years ago that uh, I think 33% of new uh, heroin addicts entering rehab in his study uh, said that they began with heroin as opposed to roughly 9% 10 years earlier. Mm -hmm. And he, uh, I think that also kind of fits with uh, Dr. Burke's uh, findings also. It seems like People are willing to take risks today that we weren't, people weren't willing to engage in earlier. What, do you, what are your thoughts about that? Am I on or do I have to hold this down? I think it's on. On? Okay. So, um, yeah, so this is why uh, breaking it into waves uh, is important. Um, there has been, um, in addition to this notion of some folks, a very small percentage of a very large population transitioning from pills over to heroin, there are new people coming into heroin. That's why we see that um, what statistics we would call bimodal distribution, where there's a young peak and then an older peak. Young folks, 
coming straight to heroin. Um, I see them all the time in the research. I say, hey, did you start with pills? You know, because we did the studies as well. We actually wrote one of the first qualitative papers looking at uh, heroin initiation, and people were coming over from pills. They, you know, truck driver, injured, doctor cut them off, heroin's cheaper and more available. Lots of those stories, yeah, about 10 years ago, eight years ago. Now, young people, eh, maybe I dabbled in pills a little bit, but they didn't reach this point of, you know, pill dependency and then transitioning over to, to heroin. A lot of folks are coming in because heroin was the drug. It's what was available um, in the late 2000s and early uh, 20-teens. Um, and folks got caught up in fentanyl. There's few people that are coming in because they love and want fentanyl. Fentanyl has sort of been an imposed situation. Now, as of the most current slice, it wouldn't surprise me if I go back out to the field right now and find that some people are coming in because of fentanyl, but that's, that remains an open question. So for many people, the, nowadays the gateway to, to heroin is heroin. Uh, okay, we want to take some questions. Uh, the gentleman in the front row, then you'll be next. Howard Woldridge with COPS, Citizens Opposing Prohibition for Dr. Sukaron. I was at a Senate hearing two years ago where Dr. Nora Volkov, head of NIDA, testified that of every of 100 people starting heroin today for the first time, a floor of 80 and a ceiling of 90% were coming from an oxycodone problem. And I'm concerned that you said that we need to worry about the next emotion, the emotional health of the next generation as the big factor here, when at least per, per the head of the NIDA, it's still the problem of doctors and dentists uh, passing out oxycodone and related like candy. Your thoughts? So she's changing her, um, her understanding of the epidemic as it goes along. She, if she were here now, she would not disagree with a lot of what I said. She might disagree with some of it. Um, so that's the way it was. That's the way we understood it for a moment that... Um, Two, two points you made. One is that folks who were entering treatment for heroin started, their first opiate of choice was a pill. And the second, uh, and then within that choice as a pill that OxyContin was a big player, let's just say. Um, and the second is that um, um, doctors were the cause, right? I take, dis I take, I take uh, issue with both of those claims. One is that um, people are now coming to heroin for heroin's sake. I just stated that. And the second is, if we think of doctors as cause, we think that matches cause lung cancer, right? It's an intermediate variable, right? Meaning that it's caught up in this confusion of understanding the bigger part of the picture, the root causes, right? Of course, doctors, the prescription problem came from prescribing, right? But why? What brought the patient to the doctor in the first place? What was the chief complaint? Was it pain? Was it disability? Was it undertreated mental health illness of which a prescription for an opioid was the result? And then there's too many pills out in the community that some of them got diverted. I understand all of that, but that's all in the middle picture. We gotta understand the root causes of this, okay? And that is social, economic, psychological, community despair that's driving uh, Americans to it, ever increasing generation by generation uh, drug use. We don't do that, we keep declining. 
sir. Uh, in this front, in the front row, uh, row two here. She's, she's coming. Hi. Um, my name is Andrew Tatarski. I'm a psychologist, and I've been working for 25 years applying harm reduction principles to psychotherapy and substance use treatment. Uh, I wrote a book, Harm Reduction Psychotherapy, and I have a center in New York City called the Center for Harm, for, I'm sorry, Optimal Living, uh, where we apply this work. There are three issues that I've been thinking about um, that haven't really been addressed, although, Dan, you just began to speak about it. Um, I mean, I think that all of the harm reduction um, strategies that we've been talking about today are critically important. But I think that the majority of problematic drug users, at the point that they become concerned about their use, are not really ready to take action around changing their uh, drug use. And I'm wondering how you think about how we need to address you know, that, I think, majority of, of folks. The other thing is that problematic drug use is driven by not just the biology, but, a, but by psychology, uh, emotional factors, and social factors, as you were just saying. And so I wonder how you think about um, how important it is to really wrap these harm reduction measures in, uh, in therapeutic strategies that can address that. And the final thing is that you know, our cultures are infused by uh, what I call the tyranny of abstinence only that's expressed in most treatment being abstinence only based treatment. And I'm wondering how much in your, uh, you know, your work uh, talking with drug users, you have found that that is, is a major barrier to people just reaching out for help because of the expectation that they're going to be met by uh, an abstinence requirement. So I'll um, I'm going to let the other speakers uh, have some time as well, but uh, going backwards, so um, um, most comparisons to abstinence treatment show abstinence as an inferior method, uh, uh, but having said that, uh, the majority of people transition away from any drug, whether it's nicotine, caffeine, heroin, um, through self-mechanisms. All right, through not having interface with the doctor. And we can argue about whether, on one hand, whether that's a bad thing because there's not enough treatment out there, or whether it's a good thing, which means that most drug use for most people goes into remission spontaneously. Okay, and maybe it's through social supports, maybe through 12-step programs, maybe it's through things that we're just not measuring in public health because we, but if you do head-to-head -head trials and you randomize people into 12-step versus, versus uh, a medication for a known diagnosis, someone with a use disorder, medication does better. Um, harm reduction used to be, just to answer one of your earlier questions, we used to be really siloed, right? Clinicians over here um, um, and, and people who were using methadone over here. The physicians didn't even talk to the methadone providers. Harm reduction is over here. Didn't want to deal anything with the doctors. We're all in conversation now. This is all fluid. Harm reduction should be the underlying philosophy to all of it whether people are, are in, in, a, in a heroin uh, uh, treatment program or whether uh, they are um, uh, working the steps. Harm reduction is a unifying philosophy here. Why? Because it's a unifying philosophy throughout all of medicine. If I'm treating somebody for uh, hypertension or cholesterol, I put them on a medication, that is harm reduction, right? Because for them, you know, if they have uh, diabetes, Right? We have the same sort of situation as opiate use disorder. We have something, a genetic, behavioral, um, uh, uh, social condition. Okay? If I wanted to cure someone of diabetes, 
right? And this one or 2% of people who can do this, I'd have them go vegan, lose X percent of body weight, 40, 50 pounds, diabetes will go away, right? But in lieu of that, because so few humans can do that, I put them on a diabetes medication, or I put the person on with cholesterol on a, on, a, on a statin, right? It is harm reduction, right? And when we start seeing those synergies, we'll make the, we'll make the loaded term go away, right? We will be embarrassed by how we look at drug consumption a generation or two from now, hopefully sooner than that. We'll be embarrassed the same way we were embarrassed by early days of psychiatry and, and other things that we did, foibles in medicine, right? And we'll start seeing it as a normal part of the human condition with some dangerous elements. We're going to help those dangerous elements go away. Anybody else want to comment on that? If, if somebody comes to me after 10 years of injection use, maybe seven attempts uh, at methadone, a few of Suboxone, multiple attempts at detox, uh, in and out of recovery, and they say to me, uh, I would like to try injection treatment. I want to reduce or stop my illicit opioid use. That is action. They've got a plan for their health. And that's a point uh, where me as a health uh, provider uh, and them as a patient have a, a common point that we can work from. That's action. Next question, uh, sir. On the aisle here. <clears throat> Hi, uh, thank you for your presentations. I'm Nestor Rocha from the DC Department of Health. And just a very quick question, um, Dr. Scarone, you, you spoke to the nuances about starting someone in naltrexone and um, being mostly for special populations. Could you elaborate on that? Who would be the special populations and why? Yeah, so uh, the two special populations that work the, that the evidence works the best, um, high-level professionals who have something at risk uh, to lose and who, because of their jobs, let's say they're airline pilots, uh, need to be, need to be, Put, or self-motivated to go into abstinence, maybe because their license is online, maybe because their job requires them to be clear-headed. Um, the second special population might be, and this needs to be further studied, is folks who have already gone through withdrawal. So, for example, folks that are incarcerated, right? I don't necessarily advocate this yet. I think we need to understand it better. I, I think the evidence would also support maintaining people on agonist therapy, methadone, buprenorphine, maybe, as we heard, uh, heroin in certain, certain situations during the period of incarceration. But in the current milieu, there are studies that support naltrexone in the use of incarcerated uh, individuals because they've already gone through the hard part. The hard part is getting the drugs out of them. They're not a particularly happy cohort, though. Naltrexone is not a very tolerable drug. So it's certainly not my favorite. You've heard, you've heard my prejudice against it thus far. So until the evidence really sways me toward that camp, uh, it's a, an expensive, incomplete solution to the problem. Uh, let's take somebody from the back. Uh, how about the very back? Hi, Dan. This is a somewhat related question. So I'm thinking about the iatri... Sorry, this is Amy Wilson-Poe from Washington University in St. Louis. Um, I'm thinking about the iatrogenic dependence. So for these people who have a physical dependence um, and, you know, from a legitimate prescription who are turned away by methadone clinics and are turned away, you know, by their pain doctors because they are... The, the pain docs only know to give them you know, more opioids, just, just stay on your drugs. Um, it sounds like naltrexone isn't going to be a good fit for them because they haven't yet gone through withdrawal. 
But how do we get buprenorphine access or, or some other access to these people who don't fit into the addiction medicine clinic because they're not addiction patients, they're simply physically dependent because of iatrogenic issues? So it's a great question. And forgive me if I just take a, a, a narrow slice of it. And that is um, um, one of the under-recognized uh, advantages of buprenorphine is its ability to treat chronic pain without a lot of the additional liabilities of some of the stronger agonists. So um, yes, one of our principles now is to try to treat pain with non-opioid therapy. That might work for some. Uh, but there are a lot of patent patients right now that are suffering because of this, this sort of sea change in, in medical culture that's happened. Um, and, um, and almost a culture war uh, is developing that has me quite concerned. Um, um, people crying now because they're not, they're basically being abandoned in unethical ways by the medical system. Um, so we need every alternative we can come up with. I think bup, not a lot of evidence, thin line of evidence, uh, but bup would be low dose. Buprenorphine would be uh, useful. We have a number of products out there. There's patches, there's sublingual dissolving uh, 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 formulations that are low dose in the microgram dose of buprenorphine that can work for, for people with low pain with low, uh, uh, very low reinforcement, meaning it doesn't, doesn't get people high, doesn't get people on a cycle use. Um, um, it can stabilize folks. Uh, they don't develop dependence. They might develop a little bit of constipation, a little bit of, of manageable side effect. Um, uh, the future is there. Um, uh, and you can also hear, none of my disclosures, by the way, had anything to do with a buprenorphine company, but I'm, you know, I'm an advocate of buprenorphine. I use it in my clinical life for both chronic pain and for opiate use disorder. Uh, let's make this the last question. Oh, I'm sorry. Okay, okay. One more after that. I just want to add something really quickly because um, we have been using dependence and addiction um, as uh, synonyms, and they're not. Um, dependence is physically needing something to function, and it's not necessarily a problem. And we should not be cutting off these pain patients who are on opioids. The pain patients who are on opioids who are doing well should be left alone. And the reason they're getting cut off is because doctors are scared of being prosecuted. And this is going on. There's tens of thousands of people. Hundreds have already committed suicide. We need to keep the distinction between dependence and addiction very clear. The reason the DSM got rid of the term dependence to use as addiction is because dependence isn't necessarily a problem. When you have a pain patient who's dependent on opioids, and yes, they'll have withdrawal if they um, uh, you know, go without, um, that does not mean we should stop their opioids. That just means they have physical dependence. Like any human being given opioids long enough will, de will develop physical dependence. That is not addiction. Addiction is compulsive drug use despite negative consequences. And when you stabilize a person, whether it's on heroin maintenance or um, buprenorphine maintenance or methadone maintenance, you are moving them from addiction, which is the compulsive use despite not negative consequences, to simple dependence, which is not a problem. So I think we really need to be careful with the terminology here because otherwise people will think dependence is bad, we gotta kick all these pain patients off, and nobody, um, there is this ridiculous lie out there that opioids do not work for chronic pain. They work for some people for chronic people, pain. Right? And there is a Cochrane review that shows that there is evidence that they work for chronic pain out to a year. 
the CDC ignored this Cochrane review because they decided, okay, we're going to only count evidence longer than a year, which nobody has because the FDA doesn't require. So I just think it's really important in the whole discussion of opioids and harm reduction that we do not leave out the voice of the pain patients. Because if you look at all the media coverage on this issue, um, with the exception of me and some other couple other people, it's basically addiction, 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 addiction. And oh yeah, pain patients exist, but they're all just addicted anyway, so we should just put them on mute. Thank you. I think it's a very good point, and I, I, I often say, you know, there are hosts of drugs that people develop a physiological dependence on. Beta blockers, for example, you can't abruptly stop beta blockers, but I don't think anybody would accuse a person who's on beta blockers as being addicted to beta blockers. They never even think of it in those terms. So we need to start thinking of opioids in the same way. Anyway, let's take one last question. One point. It, also, it also brings in the notion that doctors are inadequately trained because we're caught in this moment where CDC comes out with guidelines that are being misinterpreted because the average physician doesn't fully understand um, even the basics of, of what we call addiction. Uh, the woman in, uh, on the left over there. And that'll be the last one, and then I'll wrap up. No pressure on me to ask a decent <laughs> question. Um, my name is Abby Duggan. I work for Senator Sherrod Brown, a senator from Ohio. Um, I'm asking a question in a personal capacity, not representative of my office. But um, given the fact that I think each of you alluded in your comments that there are some barriers to accessing kind of alternative pathways here in the US, um, Dr. McDonald, if you could pretend that you live here instead of in Canada, um, I'm curious if you guys had a magic wand, what are the first two things? that each of you would do to change um, federal law or policy or, frankly, um, politics um, to improve the, the kind of potential that we have in the U.S. to do more things? Oh, I just think you need an elected official to champion it. Uh, I, there's, uh, uh, we've had one Minister of Health in Alberta uh, who's been very, very vocal and has been effective for change. Uh, but uh, uh, unless somebody's willing to state the, the facts, come out in support uh, of this and make a uh, uh, burn some political uh, uh, fire, uh, it ain't going to happen. Paul, you got some thoughts? Yeah, yeah. Um, I mean, well, I think it would be great to have some federal funding for heroin-assisted treatment. And the grand scheme, or, you know, to do the RCTs. In the grand scheme of things, that's pretty low on the priority list. You know, increasing access to methadone and buprenorphine has to be at the top of the list. As I said, there's still states where Medicaid won't cover this. I mean, so there are people who acknowledge that they're running into problems with their opioid use. They say, I want help, I can't get it. And they're being told that they have to wait or they may not get access. That's just unacceptable. So anything we can do, and it's not just pouring money into this as well. I, I mean, I'm sure this is what Dan's going to talk about as well. But, you know, as the only non-MD on this panel, I should, I should be kind of quiet about this. But in terms of the buprenorphine waiver, why do we have to have waivers for this as opposed to when you don't have to have a waiver for oxycodone or some of these other substances? So that seems to me to be a really low-hanging fruit. I, I might add, uh, methadone, why can't we treat methadone similarly to the way we treat buprenorphine right now. In many countries for decades, uh, pr primary care physicians who want to treat uh, addictive diseases have been able to prescribe methadone to patients. But under our rules, model, yeah. uh, not only do we have a scarcity of clinics because of all the regulations, but it's just not practical to expect people in some rural areas to drive 100 miles each way to, to take their methadone in, in, oh. at a center. 
Yeah. Go ahead. Can I jump uh, in then, again? Oh, go ahead. Then, then so, so, so we, re, uh, our federal government uh, recently <laughs> made uh, diamorphine, uh, prescription heroin, hydromorphone, and methadone just regular prescribed medications. So they're, they're, the use, uh, there's no special exemption required for any of those medications. Any physician can prescribe them, and nurse practitioners can prescribe as well. So that, that's the Canadian situation. Thank you. So if I could choose one policy uh, um, uh, for the, um, either the current administration or the next administration uh, to take up, um, let's reform the Data 2000 law. That's the law that authorizes buprenorphine. Uh, for primary care to use. Um, stop all restrictions on buprenorphine. Um, no need for special training. Insulin is a more dangerous drug than buprenorphine. Um, and we prescribe it straight out of medical school. Um, and um, uh, allow the full range of providers to be able to use it, nurse practitioners, PA, and the like, um, and get insurance, mandate that insurance covers it. All insurance, public and private insurances. There's, right now, there's you know big barriers in terms of prior uh, authorizations and stuff like that. We will, in trade-off, um, develop a small um, 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 underground market of buprenorphine that you know uh, might bring a few extra people in. But the trade-off will be a dramatic decrease in overdose deaths. And even if we did it temporarily, a five-year, eight-year, ten-year um, waiver exemption, whatever you want to call it. Um, uh, that, that's the crisis thing that we could do right now. Congress could enact that next week if they wanted to. Um, doctors are not signing up for buprenorphine because they don't want eight hours of extra training. They don't want those patients in their clinic, right? The beauty of the Data 2000 law was to make it for primary care to use so that everyone would take on a handful or four of those patients, right? And we actually reduce the stigma, right? So we're not fulfilling the the... The, the, the spirit of the Data 2000 law because of the, uh, the barriers. Let's, um, let's ditch the waiver requirements. Okay, well, uh, this wraps up the formal portion of our harm reduction conference. I'd like to thank all of the really outstanding speakers we had today. Uh, just to rename them, we had Darwin Fisher, uh, former Governor Rendell, Maya Salovitz, Corey Davis, Dr. Adrian po uh, Wilson Poe, uh, Dean Donald Burke, uh, Dan Chicarone, uh, Bo Kilmer, Scott McDonald. I don't think I left anybody out. Also, from Cato, we had Clark, McNeil, Clark Neely, Jeffrey Myron, Trevor Burris, and Michael Cannon. And I'd like to thank all of the support staff that helped make this possible. Uh, Kiana Graham, uh, the conference coordinator, um, research assistants, uh, Michael Schemenauer, Jackie Pohida, Allison Ryan, Catherine Chacon, and uh, uh, um, Dave Tassie, I'm sure I'm forgetting some people. I feel like I'm at the Oscars right now. Uh, so, and again, I want to express my gratitude to uh, Cato sponsor Robert Ayers, who partnered with us to help make this event possible with a generous grant. Um, it's time for federal, state, and local policymakers and lawmakers to embrace a strategy that for decades has saved countless lives in the majority of the world's developed countries, yet has struggled to gain recognition and acceptance here in the United States. If the ultimate goal of public policy is reducing deaths, diseases, and other harms that result from drug prohibition, then it's time to shift from the title of this conference, from a war on drugs to a war on drug-related deaths by embracing harm reduction strategies. In my opinion, the ultimate harm reduction strategy would be to end the war on drugs. Uh, thank you all so much for attending. There'll be a reception held in the Winter Garden 
which is out the door to the left near the entrance uh, to the building. And please join us for a reception. And uh, thank you again for coming.